this morning we turn to really a quite of a challenging text with serious implications. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45. And before we explore these verses together, I want to think through a question. And that question, and we've asked it several times, but the question for us to consider is, why do some people believe and yet others reject? Now again, we have looked at this question before from several different angles, but today I want to consider it in in a different way. Because we understand that salvation is really a mystery of God. And while we affirm that God is certainly sovereign to elect and call and save, God decides to redeem. He chooses to redeem. Yet He still employs the means of our own repentance and faith in the equation. That's, That's a a reality that's baffled people for, for as long as there's been the gospel of how can God be totally sovereign and have uh, divine power, and yet there still is human responsibility. It's a great mystery, but we know that both are true. We know that God is sovereign over salvation, but we know we must still repent and believe. After all, the Bible does say over and over again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And yet we see that there are some who harden their hearts in rebellion. And all throughout chapter 12 of Matthew, we've seen really chance after chance for the leaders of Israel to turn from their sins and to trust in Christ, to believe in Him. And they've had a front row seat to His majesty, to His miracles, to His message. But yet over and over again they reject Him, even blaspheming Him and cursing Him. And the whole ordeal really begins at the beginning of chapter 12, with the disciples doing something very simple, walking through a grain field and picking pieces of grain, rolling it between their fingers and eating it as a snack. Very simple. They were working certainly with inside the law, within custom. They were allowed to do that on any other day. But the Pharisees, they seize on this and they accuse these men of violating the Sabbath laws that they themselves had created. They were not guilty of violating the Bible. They were guilty of violating uh, the Pharisaical law. And so what ensues in chapter 12 is really an elongated interaction between Jesus and these Jewish Pharisees, these leaders in Israel, and demonstrates to them, Jesus does, various signs that he himself is Lord of the Sabbath as well as the long-awaited Messiah. And then in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 29, we see Jesus miraculously healing a man who is demon-possessed, and he's blind and he's mute. And this was, a, this was a, a marvelous miracle. This was a powerful miracle. This was a, an awe-inspiring miracle. The, 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 the text says, and the Greek really translates out, that when they saw this miracle, they were amazed. They were smacked into, out of their senses. They were so shocked by this miracle. But despite the crowd's amazement, the Pharisees, they still accuse Jesus of healing the man, not by the power of God, but by the power of Satan. They couldn't refute the, the veracity of the miracle. Instead, they went back to the source and it says, no, you're doing this by the power of Satan. And then in verse 31 to 32, Jesus tells these men that, that such a blasphemy that they've uttered against the Lord himself, such a blasphemy will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. And the reason is because the words only affirmed what was existent in their hearts, their rotten hearts, their tree inside that was unable to produce good fruit. And he, he gives that illustration in this, in this text as well. 
Rather, they then accept correction and repent for their sins. The Pharisees do exactly what Jesus says they're doing. And they continue to harden their hearts and they, even, they double down more. They double down even more. Verse 38, they ask Jesus to give them one more sign that's going to validate his claim to be the Messiah. We looked at that last week. All right, fine. I know we've accused you of terrible things, but I'll tell you what, just do, just do one more sign and then we'll believe. But Jesus responds and says, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And that is the sign of his death, burial, and resurrection. If you don't believe that, then you really are condemned. That's what he's essentially going to tell them. And he tells them that both the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba in their day, they will stand in judgment of these people because they believed. They believed in God. They trusted in him. And they saw very little. But Israel have seen everything that they've possibly could need. And yet they have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus has one more thing to say here. One more thing to say before he, his attention is deferred elsewhere. And at first glance, it seems like it's a little bit of an odd text. And when I was sort of mapping out, I, I don't know if I've ever explained this to you, but I kind of look at just pericopes. A pericope is just kind of a piece of text that's put together. You know, this, this many verses that kind of forms a unit. I look at that and try to figure out what's going on in the narrative. And when I looked at this, these couple verses here, you know, at first glance, it doesn't seem like there's a lot to build a message on. Oh, was I wrong. Oh, was I wrong. I'm so glad I was wrong, too. Um, But verses 43 to 45, when we realize what's actually going on here, we see that this text is really profound and pretty sobering. Let's look at this together. Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45. Jesus is speaking here. He tells the Pharisees, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says... I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes out, or then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Now, for the purposes of our outline this morning, I'm kind of proposing an unusual outline. I say unusual because normally I'll either, I'll either give no outline at all and I'll just kind of work through the text as is, or sometimes I'll give three points to kind of break up how the text is going. But today I want to do it a little bit differently. I want to explore this text and establish the main point of the parable, because it is a parable, and I want to apply it three different ways. And I want to examine this text historically, so what's actually happening in the context here with these people. And then I, I also want to explore this nationally. Nationally, We'll talk about what that means. And then I want to apply this personally. What does this mean for you and me as believers? And why am I doing it this way? Well, the Bible, every single Bible text has really one divine meaning, one intended meaning. In other words, God is the sole author, and he's not divided, he's not confused about what he's saying to us. There is one mind, one voice that inspires the text. However, as we study, as believers, as we study uh, being illuminated by the Spirit of God, we apply these texts to our own lives. Because remember, we are not literally in this context here. We're not living in Jerusalem in the first century. So we have to apply the truth of this, and that can be done sometimes many different ways. 
Many ways to apply it, many ways to see it, many ways to use it does not change the meaning. It simply uh, changes the application to us personally. So I want to look at all three of these today. Number one, we're going to see this text historically. Historically. When Jesus uttered these words, they had a very specific meaning to his immediate audience. They would have heard this and received it a certain way. Now again, there's Jews in the crowd. There are the religious leaders in the crowd. Lots of people there. And something happens here, and I want to look at these words as they're being applied. Verse 43, we see that Jesus is going back to the topic of demon possession. If you've been tracking with us, you see that that's kind of been a reoccurring theme, hasn't it? We have saw it way back in chapter 9. We've seen it progressively throughout. And even here, the, really, the horns of the issue, the horns of the debate here, are on the fact that Jesus healed this man, and the Pharisees are accusing him of doing this by demonic power. So we're dealing with demon possession, demonic power. There's a theme here of whether or not this is being done by the, the power of God or the power of Satan. And so Jesus, if you remember correctly, he doesn't really deal with this issue. He talks about it, he talks through it, he, he attacks their logic, he attacks their heart, but he circles back around here and he goes back to this issue of this unclean spirit, this demon. And he's going to build his teaching on this recurring theme of demonic possession, demonic power, satanic influence, all these different things. He's going to build on this because they need to understand what's really going on here. In essence, he's saying, you want to talk about demons? Let me tell you about what's going on in your own hearts when it comes to demons. Again, this, this event really elicited a, an unforgivable sin. Jesus had cast out a demon. He's bringing it back up again. He doesn't seem to be offering, however, I want you to note this, he's not offering a discourse in demonology. You, you can't read this and sort of plot it on a line and say, okay, uh, demons, they typically go to waterless places, and when they come back, they always bring seven, and you can't build a theology on this. That's not the point. The point is it's a parable. He's, he's providing teaching broadly to be applied here. So it's not a demonology. It's not a systematic theology, but he is going to bring forth a parable, a story, an illustration for the purpose of illustrating divine truth. That's what a parable is, okay? It's a story or a picture to illustrate a deeper truth. Verse 43, he notes here that in the event of an unclean spirit, now that's a demon, okay? An unclean spirit goes out of a man. Now we don't know if this demon has been cast out by Jesus or anybody else, or if this demon is leaving this person on their own volition. Jesus doesn't say. He simply says this demon, this unclean spirit goes out. And he says that when the unclean spirit departs, Jesus says when it departs, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Now, this seems a little bit strange at first glance. You're talking about a demon going into waterless places. What are you talking about? And again, we see this restless demon. He's on, he, he gets almost bored of tormenting this poor person, whoever this person is. And he leaves this, this abode of this person's soul. He leaves this person to go find some relaxing home. It's a very strange imagery, isn't it? A demon getting bored with possession and leaving for, for greener pastures. Jesus notes that this demon passes through waterless places. Scholars pretty much unanimously believe that this is a reference to the desert. And part of that conclusion is drawn by the fact that uh, in many uh, Jewish sources, many of the, the Jewish rabbinic teachings uh, believe that demons would frequent dry and arid and desert regions. If you wanted to 
have issues with demonic power, you go out into desolate regions. You know, they, they weren't really finding as much rest in the big cities. They were going out into the wilderness. Again, there's no biblical proof for that. That was just the popular, the common teaching. Again, Jesus is telling a story. He's using their own literature along this to, to tell the story. So the demon goes out. It's seeking rest. It's seeking rest. And the, the Bible says here, Jesus says, it does not find the rest it's looking for. This venture gets a little bit futile at this point because the demon doesn't find the rest it wants. And so what does it do? It decides out in the middle of the desert, I'm going to go back. Verse 44. It says, presumably to itself, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Notice that the demon refers to the formerly possessed person as my house. Again, strange, really strange. That a demon would regard a person's life, a person's body and soul and mind as their home. But that gives you some idea of how how, uh, entrenched this was uh, for this possession. It's a cozy abode for this demon to reside. Now, again, we're we're looking at this from the the perspective of a demon. But what kind of a, a person is experiencing demon possession? A person whose life is in torment and in agony, in misery. That is the abode for this unclean spirit. But the demon makes a decision to go back to the person and re-inhabit them. What will the demon find when it gets there? Will it be able to go back into that person? Apparently so. And in this case, with great ease. It says, when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Again, this is peculiar. Because what kind of a person leaves themselves open for demon possession? How twisted do you have to be? How marred in sin? How broken do you have to be? How dead inside do you have to be to just leave the door wide open for this to happen? Certainly not a person whose life is put in order. Rather, it's a life that's fleshly and in chaos. But again, viewing this situation from the perspective of a demon to a demon, a sinful, fleshly life is a perfect abode for them to thrive. You see what Jesus is doing here? Think with me. A person has been liberated from a demon, from possession, and in its absence, the person who's been freed doesn't reinforce the door. They don't change the locks on the house. They don't even rearrange the furniture. Everything is exactly the way it was when this demon left. And so their life now is wide open for this unclean spirit, this demon, to come back and it is greeted with a welcome mat in the front. The story has suddenly gone from quirky to eerie, to very strange, to disconcerting. This person, freed from possession, has not been vigilant. They leave the door wide open. And what does the demon do? When it comes back, verse 45, it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. Now, not only has the demon come back, so whatever affliction the person was suffering before, now it's gotten worse. He's bringing seven others back with him, and not just one more or two more, seven more, and the seven more are even more wicked than the first one. I don't know what kind of degrees of wickedness you have in the demonic realm, but to have one that is worse than another, it's, it's pretty bad, isn't it? Again, we're not talking about 
identifying demonology here, but Jesus is illustrating a very powerful point. Now this person, who has not changed anything in their life at all, now that everything is exactly the way it was before, now this person is going to be tormented far worse, not even twice as bad or three times as bad, seven times as bad, and then not even magnified because they're worse. To which Jesus adds, you can imagine almost even in a somber tone, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Now at first glance, it just seems like a cautionary tale about not letting demons back in your life at first glance. But there's more here. There's more here. And here's where, here's the, the payoff pitch, if you will. At the end of it, the very last sentence, Jesus makes application to the hearers. He says this, and he's gone through this, this, this big long parable about what this is. Then he says, that is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Now it's just brought home. Suddenly the connection's made. What did he already say about this evil generation? Way back in Matthew 11, verses 20 to 24, Jesus is pronouncing woe on cities of people who are rejecting him. He even says it's better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Why does he say that? Sodom and Gomorrah was terrible. Well, their judgment was not going to be as severe because they didn't know any better. You know better. He's talking about the cities that he came and did miracles. Chorazin, Bethsaida, all these cities that had a front row seat to Jesus' majesty. And he's pronouncing woe on this generation of people who should know better. But then in chapter 12, verse 39, he makes a reference to this current evil and adulterous generation. He's talking about Israel here. And why does he call them evil and adulterous? Because they've hardened their hearts in rebellion and even cursed Jesus to his face when he offers them salvation. They looked him right in the eye and they cursed him and they blasphemed and they dared to call his work and his ministry demonic. And so he's making his case against unrepentant Israel. Again, verse 31, 32, he tells them that they will not be forgiven for this sin. You will not be forgiven for this. Verse 37, he says they're condemned even. Why? Is it because God is not willing to forgive sins? God will forgive any and every sin that is confessed in Christ. So that's not the truth that we're not able to be forgiven. What he's talking about is because their words are evil, it points to their hearts being even more evil, and that's proven. They harden their hearts so much they reject him, even inside of plain evidence. Jesus makes a, an accusation. He looks into their, the contents of their heart. He looks in their hearts and he says, I can see what's going on inside of you and you're dead. You're wicked. You're evil. There's no goodness in you. There's no faith in you. There's no repentance in you. There is no fruit worthy of repentance in you. So he's pronouncing judgment on them. And then verse 43 to 45 illustrates why, why their hearts are so hardened. Because that would be the question, right? Well, their hearts are hardened. They're rejecting Jesus. Why are they rejecting Jesus? Why? Because they never prepared their heart to receive the Lord. They never prepared for him. They knew he was coming. If anybody knew in all of Israel to wait for the Messiah, 
to read the Bible, to know the Bible, to pray, to expect Him to come, to expect Him to fulfill promises. If anybody should have known that, it should have been the religious leaders of Israel. They had everything at their disposal. They were worshiping in the temple that God told them to build, performing sacrifices and rites that God had prescribed to them in the Bible. Sacrifices of animals, shedding of blood to to be a type, a, a shadow of the sacrifice of Christ. They should have known better, and yet they hardened their hearts. See, the Pharisees, they were all about appearances. They only cared about the outside. They did not deal with the inside at all. How do we know this? Because Jesus says it later on in Matthew 23, verse 25. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. In other words, bad fruit. You have nothing inside of you but bad fruit, rotten fruit. He tells him in verse 27 of the same chapter that inside they are full of dead men's bones in all uncleanness. He says, you guys are rotten to the core. If I were to open up your your body, I would only see a dead skeleton inside. No soul. That's essentially what he's saying. You're full of robbery. They were devouring widows' houses. A a, a woman would, would lose her husband. Her husband would die. She'd have no means to take care of herself. The Pharisees would come in and say, come here, sweetheart, I'll take care of you. And they'd bilk her for all she was worth and leave her as a pauper. How despicable do you have to be? These guys... Robbery, self-indulgence, uncleanness. My friends, this is the perfect home for demons to reside. You want to know a a nice put-together house for the realm of darkness? It's that. It is a heart and a soul and a life that is addicted to debauchery and uncleanness and hardness of heart. And when, when the Messiah comes, what does he do? He begins to cast out all demons. He casts out all disease. He casts out all death. He forgives sins. He looks inside of a person's heart. They they, they lower a man down to him who obviously needs to be healed physically. And what's the first thing he does for that man? He doesn't fix his legs. He says, your sins are forgiven. And then he heals him. That's what Jesus does. He has come to destroy the kingdom of darkness. Well, guess what doesn't like that? The kingdom of darkness. They don't want this. And so they get angry because Jesus is not dealing with what they wanted him to deal with, which is the external. Be a good Jew, Jesus. Focus on your outward piety. Get people to come to temple. Have them bring more sacrifices for us. But he doesn't deal with the external. Very, very little. He deals with what's going on inside. He deals with inside the heart. I'm here for hearts and souls, Jesus would have said. But truthfully, they didn't want this. They didn't want their heart to change. They liked their sin. They didn't want a new heart. They loved their robbery and their self-indulgence and their wickedness too much. And so this parable is a judgment on unrepentant Israel. It's a judgment against these leaders Because their heart was never changed. They never made room for God inside. They knew He was coming. They were waiting for Him. And yet they never once thought, gee, 
maybe I should repent. Maybe I should examine myself. Maybe I should get right with God. They thought they were fine. They never prepared for Him to come and dwell within them, even though He promised to do so. And so at the first opportunity for sin and evil to crop up, they indulge in this evil with the force of seven demons. That's what it takes. That's what kind of wickedness it takes to accuse the Son of God of of demonic power. That's how wicked this is. That's his illustration. They cursed the Lord. They blasphemed him. They even plotted to destroy him. They were already scheming at this early point. He doesn't go to the cross at least for six months to a year later, depending on which narrative you're looking at. It's it's going to be a while before he actually goes to the cross, but even at this early point, they're planning to kill him. That's called premeditated murder. They were plotting and planning to destroy the Son of God, and in short order, they would. They would succeed in putting him on the cross. And when the leaders of Israel rejected the Messiah, they sealed their own fate. And they would be condemned. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what he's dealing with. That's the historical context. But the question is, does this have further application? And I would argue yes. Number two, nationally. Now I'm pulling pulling this back a little bit because, again, Jesus is talking about an evil generation. He's talking about a whole group of people alive at one point who this is applicable to. Again, if this parable is told to the leaders of this one nation who rejected Christ, surely it can be applied to others. And I would even ask for us to examine ourselves. What about our own nation? What about our own nation? We often hear it repeated that this used to be a Christian nation. I hear that all the time. I've read books about it. I've listened to sermons about it. And it's partially true. Partially true. For many years we had a a high concentration of believers We still have lots of believers in America, but certainly New England. I mean, New England was the hub of the modern missions movement. We had churches and believers and pastors and theologians and schools and everything here. This was a large concentration of believers. We had large Christian institutions. We built schools and we built seminaries, hospitals, missionary organizations. Our laws have been impacted by the moral code of the Bible there could be no doubt that we were the inheritance or the inheritors of a strong Christian heritage. I mean, you look at if you still carry money around with you, dollars and coins, you'll see the, the slogan, In God We Trust. And yet, in another respect, we are not at all a Christian nation. We are one of the largest exporters of immoral entertainment and ideas. We traffic in corruption and godlessness. We've even codified into law the mass destruction of the unborn. Moloch would be happy with America right now. Further, many of our politicians, our celebrities, our philanthropists, they identify as Christian. They check the box, Christian. Yet they live lives that are visibly contrary to the gospel. And many of our, again, politicians who claim to be Christians, they're not. And it's evidenced by the fruit of their life and what they stand for, their platforms. I often wonder, even with many political conservatives, what exactly are we conserving? Now this is the danger of brandishing the title of Christian, yet not having a Godward heart. Claiming to have an outward appearance of godliness, yet having nothing inside. 
why do we seem to have these conservative, sort of Christian-tinted resurgences every couple of years and then collapse into utter debauchery? Why does that happen? It seems like we have these radical swings. Why is that? I'm not talking about politics, by the way. Why do we have this in the moral fabric, in the societal fabric? I believe it's because when we're faced with the purging of evil in this country, we don't use that opportunity to turn to Christ. We don't have national revival. The messages on TV are not repent of your sins and trust in Christ. It's all focused on campaigns or personalities or giving money to this or giving money to that. The message is never Christ. And so what happens is we change nothing. And then seven demons come back even stronger. And now you have the open rebellion of what we have today. An open rebellion against the most simple, basic truths of Genesis 1 and 2. Things I I don't even dare to speak of from this pulpit that I know you know. Friends, our only hope, our only hope is the regenerative, transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope for this nation. It's the only hope for any nation. It was the hope of the Ninevites. It was the only hope of Israel. The hope of Babylon. The hope of any nation is the gospel of Jesus Christ because He is the Lord of all. And if we don't have Jesus, we don't have anything. We just don't. The bottom line is that you must be born again. That has to be our motto. Now, I've said this before. When you have opportunity to vote, you vote. When you have a voice, you use it. You, You do whatever God gives you to do socially. Civilly, that's fine. But I'm talking about the very core of our morality, the fabric of who we are as people, has to be built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the parable that we see here. Jesus is saying, this is what it is for this evil generation that does not accept the Christ. And what happened to Israel? They collapsed. They were overtaken. Destroyed. Matthew Henry, the commentator, says this. Let this be a warning to all nations and all churches to take heed of leaving their first love, of letting fall a good work of reformation begun among them and returning to the wickedness which they seem to have forsaken. If we are who we say we are, we must live as though we are believers. We are not to link ourselves to causes devoid of Christ. Every nation, including ours, is to be put on notice that the only hope is Christ. The only hope is Christ. Because what will it be in the end of the age when there is one world, one city, one king? Whose kingdom will it be? Christ. There's one more application, I believe. Personally. Number three. Personally. We're talking about all of Israel. We're talking about whole nations. What about you and I? Is there application here for us? I believe there are applications here for us. There is a danger of living a seemingly moral, upright, charitable, friendly life, and yet never trust in Christ. There's lots of nice people in the world. And we all know that neighbor that we have. They've got a beautiful family. Their lawn is mowed. They go to their job, they pay their taxes, they're a nice guy, they would never hurt anybody. And you think to yourself, well, well, gee whiz, they seem really great. 
They don't, they don't believe in Jesus, though. They don't, they don't have any kind of faith, but, but they're okay. And we sort of relegate them to a category that is outside of Christian and non-Christian. Because those are the only two categories the Bible gives. We say that they're a nice person. But here's the problem. You can effectively have an, a nice exterior and yet open yourself up inside for the deceitfulness of your own heart to destroy you. Because the Bible says that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Not all the time, every single moment of our lives, but sin pervades every single corner of who we are. And it taints us. And this happens all the time. A person believes because they're a nice person, a nice guy, a nice gal, that they can attain their own righteousness apart from Christ, but they never really do. You go online, you see they do, they do videos, they do posts. Some of these people are even famous and they're self-help and they're powerful and they're strong and they're successful and they want to be like me, just do what I do and they build themselves up. But it's only a matter of time before that collapses because the foundation is not on Christ. The foundation's on themselves. Peter actually warns about this in 2 Peter Chapter 2, he says, he's talking about, now he's talking about false teachers. There's, there's an application of false teachers. I believe there's application for us as well. He says, for if, after they, false teachers, have escaped the, de- the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. And the last state of them becomes worse than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. And it happened to them, according to the truth of the proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. The danger for us, the danger for any person, is that you put on a nice exterior. Maybe you go to church for a while. Maybe you have all these outward things, but the truth of the gospel never permeates into the core of who you are. You never actually turn from your sins. You never actually believe on Jesus. Your heart never actually changes. And so therefore, when all the exterior falls away, when your body falls apart, when your mind falls apart, when your relationships aren't what they seem, maybe you lose a job, maybe you get sick, maybe you just become self-condemned and you become self-hating. That happens to people. There's a spiral in in Titus chapter 3 where they just become, they go from bad to worse, hating others and then finally hating themselves. Whenever your life is built on you alone, you will inevitably fall into that pit. The danger is that the last state of that person becomes worse than the first. And so you must acknowledge your sins. You must recognize before God, I can't do this by myself. I want to do well in this life, Lord. I want to to be positive. I want to be encouraging. I want to be joyful. I want to have all the external fruit. That's great. But Lord, you must change me on the inside. Otherwise, my outward fruit is rotten. Change me on the inside. Acknowledge your sins before God. Acknowledge your sins. Forsake your own righteousness. Isaiah said, our righteousness is filthy rags to God. My righteousness is not worth anything at all to God. And then you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for the attainment of salvation. Where Jesus Christ, by His own life, lived perfectly, walked the life that we're supposed to walk, the the same path we're supposed to take. 
And he gave, up, he gave up his life on the cross and died to pay the, the penalty for our sins. And when he was on the cross, the Father looked at him, wrapped in our sinfulness, and cursed him. Even though he was his own son. And as he died, the penalty of our sin died with him. And then when he was resurrected on the third day, bursting forth from the grave, life came with him. He's the firstborn from the dead, the Bible says. And all who believe in Him, who trust in Him, that's their future as well. And they're resurrected to new life. They're, they're raised up to, to walking and leaping and praising God, as we read earlier. They have new life in Christ. And then, then and only then, when their life is new in Christ, then the fruit of their life becomes good. They don't do things out of a dead heart. They do things out of a living heart. A heart that desires to honor God and love others because they've been loved by God. And now their fruit becomes good. And then you live your life as a believer in a way that reflects your faith. The answer, going back to this whole national idea, the answer is not just to to be nice to people. That helps a society, but that's not the ultimate answer. The ultimate answer is to be reconciled to God. And that's how societies are built and built strong. When nations, cities, whole peoples acknowledge God and submit to Him and believe the gospel and have their life changed, then they really can love their neighbor. Then they really do create just laws. Then they really do repent and are forgiven then they really do help the sick and help the poor and build hospitals and change the world for God's glory. We are called, therefore, to not fill our lives with our own righteousness and our own sinfulness. In fact, Ephesians 4, I want want to close just reading this to you. Ephesians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 22. He says, In your former manner of life, to lay aside the old self. Lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with his lust of deceit. And then he says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God that has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And so we are not believers. We are not to, to walk in our old lives. Because when you do that, all you're doing is opening yourself up to fall again. You're living a life that has been paid for by Christ. And so we do not leave the door open for sins. We don't leave the door open for wickedness. As believers, we put off. We put off the old man and put on the new. And in doing so, we are vigilant to believe. We are vigilant to grow. We are vigilant to love and obey the Lord. And the last state of that person who trusts in Christ and repents of their sins and lives for God, the last state of that person is glory. That's where we want to be. That is our only hope in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we humble ourselves before You. Father, we know that this is not about cleaning the outside of the cup and of the dish. This is not about external appearances only. This is about you doing a work inside of our hearts and minds. This is about restoration. This is about reconciliation. 
This is about regeneration, changing us and making us brand new. And so, Lord, I I would plead with you that you would reach out to these people, whoever they are, who are in desperate need of you. That maybe they think to themselves that they're, they're okay, they're doing good. They're a nice person. They don't hurt anybody. And maybe they're building their life on their own righteousness, hoping that that's going to save them. Father, I pray that you would destroy that. Not destroy them, but to save them. But destroy their foundation and rebuild it on solid rock. That their foundation, their faith, their life, their hope will be built on Christ. The foundation that cannot be torn down. That cannot be moved. Because in the end, Lord, as we look around and see see the, the trouble on the horizon, we want to be built up and founded in you. And Lord, I, I fear for those who maybe they reform their lives for a little bit, but never, never close the door, never turn and trust in you. They're healed for the moment, or Lord, maybe that you, they're delivered in their mind or their heart for just a moment, and yet they don't turn. And they go right back to their old life. And they invite in an evil that is worse than before. And so I pray, Lord, that you would reach out and save by your own divine prerogative that you would save sinners. And for those of us here who have been saved, Lord, you have extended an incredible mercy on us. You have redeemed by your own will. You did not have to save any one of us, and yet you extended kindness to so many. Thank you, God, for having mercy on poor sinners like us. Thank you for sending your Son to give his life as a ransom for us. Thank you for restoring and redeeming hearts and souls and minds, whole lives, to glory. Help us not to take this lightly, but to take it as a warning to give our life to you now. And Lord, I pray for any who don't know you, And I pray for those of us who do know you, who would not become slack and fall back, but dial in and press in with you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.